If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3, and I, I really think we'll finish chapter 3 today, and we'll actually get to start chapter 4 um, perhaps next week. Cha- uh, chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, starting with verses 20 and 21. And we talked a little bit about some of this already through some of our singing and some of the lyrics, but it says for Paul writing to the church at Philippi, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, do you notice that word eagerly? You see it? From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me break there. You remember one, one Sunday I talked about this eagerly wait for a Savior, and I said if Jesus came and he said you can go now or later, how many of us would say, okay, I'm ready to go now? And I suggest that there might be some who would say, well, I want to go, but uh, I just my, my grandkids just moved close to home. And I just want to know what that feels like for a couple of weeks before we go to heaven or whatever it may be. Uh, are we eagerly waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. And that's it. Now, that's not the easiest flow to, uh, to track with, to easily just uh, process. At least it wasn't for me. I have to think that through a little bit and try to take it apart a little bit and unpack it a little bit so, so that I can get the, the gist of it. So the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter to the people living in Philippi, he reminds these the true believers, and, and, he, and we've talked about this before, every church has uh, people, true believers, and they also have people that are very religious, and they know a lot about the storyline. And they would say that they are believers, but they are not true believers. Every church has that. The world has that. And so we need to understand, he's talking to the true believers, the true disciples of Jesus Christ, It reminds these true believers in Jesus that they may be living in Philippi, but they, in reality, are citizens of another place, namely heaven. Now, we may be living in Marionette. I realize, welcome to all of you who are here for homecoming, and God bless you. Some of you are living in Florida uh, most of the time, maybe all the time, and you're back for the special events, and we're glad that you're here with us, but... Most of us may be living in Marion, Indiana, or Gas City, or Upland, wherever, uh, but we're really citizens of heaven, aren't we? I mean, we really are. And you say, well, why is that important? Because it's easy easy to get distracted in the things of this world. Now, we're going to put a map up here and show us once again where Philippi is. If we look at the map this morning, we can see the big red arrow there that Philippi is a city in a place called Macedonia. But at the time that Paul is writing this to the church at Philippi, the city is literally a colony of Rome. Now, that's Italy over on on that side. (laughs) Sorry. Over on that side, you can see A-L-Y. That's Italy, and Rome is over there. And so Rome was in charge, and they really were a colony of Rome. So they technically were Roman citizens living in Philippi, a city of Macedonia. So, so the people in Philippi getting this letter and reading this language in his letter, they knew what it was like to live in a place that was not where their true citizenship belonged. And friends, that's you and me. 
That's you and me. We're, we're in the same boat. Disciples of Christ live in any city, earth, but our citizenship belongs to another place called heaven. Citizens of heaven identifies who we really are. And because of that, he says, we're eagerly waiting for the emperor of heaven to come and take us to where we really belong. Call him emperor with a capital E. Call him president with a capital P. Uh, The word of God calls him the creator of everything. And his name is Jesus. How do I know that? How how can you know that? First John, or excuse me, regular John, John the gospel, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Listen to what he says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Who created this world? Jesus. You see, the word, when it says in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so we wait with a sense of uh, eagerness and anticipation for his appearance. Like It's sort of like, I know this is kind of silly to put it this way, but you can relate to it, especially the closer we get to uh, 12 o'clock. You can relate to this. It's sort of like eagerly waiting. It's sort of like when, we, when we're waiting for that pizza to come out of the oven. And you're saying, how much longer? How, what, how much more time on the timer? I can taste it right now. I've been saving my appetite. My, the saliva is just dripping. I'm, it's awful. I can't. How many more minutes before that great pizza comes out of the oven? Because we're feeling so hungry, we can hardly wait. Now, be honest. How many of us have burned our mouth because we ate a pizza that was way too hot? All right, you know what I'm talking about. So, so this illustration works. Eager anticipation is what causes that to happen. And so I have no doubt that Paul is teaching us not to get so caught up. Church, true church, disciples, don't get so caught up with living in a distant country that we forget we don't even belong here. We do not belong here. So... We're not to get too attached to stuff that doesn't matter. Church, don't let yourself get too attached to stuff that doesn't matter. What matters is the work we were sent to do for Jesus while we eagerly wait for his return. Jesus who created everything, Jesus who created each one of us, gave us a job to do once we put our faith in him, gave us a work to do, and we should do that while we are eagerly waiting. I can't wait to get out of here. (laughs) Not because I don't appreciate what he's given me, but the real issue is the assignment. The real issue is the spiritual work 
that we have to do. And so that's why we had something last week called Missions Conference. And our Commission on Missions uh, had some of our missionaries come. And you heard some of them give their testimonies and their stories by video. And uh, I think even in our choir this morning, Chelsea Horkman, where are you, Chelsea? I saw you here. There she is. She's been a part of our missions team in the past. And some of you have supported her. And we're just thankful for our missionaries. Hoping to go back to Africa, right? Hoping to go back to Africa. So you may want to catch uh, Chelsea and find out more about how God is working in her life. But what matters is the work we were sent to do for Jesus while we eagerly wait for his return, and until he gets here, listen to this, until he gets here, we have this meal to eat together. We have this meal to eat together that reminds us He's coming back for us. This reminds us he's coming back for us. We belong to him. We were bought by him. The price was tremendous for you and I to have our sins covered. Payment made that we could not pay ourselves. The cost for each one of us who are disciples of Jesus was the life of Jesus. And so who do we belong to? Jesus. Who do we belong to? Jesus. He bought us with a tremendously high price. The life of the only begotten Son of God. Well, then, speaking of Jesus, Paul goes on to say in verse 21 this. This Jesus who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Now, did you get all that? Were you able to unpack that? (laughs) I had to think about that. Don't you have to think about that a little bit? What does that mean, Paul? Who will transform Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So, think about it this way. When Jesus gets here, he's going to change our bodies. See? He's going to transform the body. When Jesus gets here, he's going to transform our bodies, which have never been able to perfectly perform the work that he sent us to do. How many of you would agree that that you don't always, even though you want to get it right for Jesus, you occasionally flub it up. You mess it up once in a while. You get it wrong once in a while. You, you, you just don't you don't perform consistently, and, and, and you feel badly when it doesn't happen that way. And you take advantage of Jesus died for, for, and so I can confess when I mess up, and I know God won't hold that against me because of Jesus and the whole thing. But it wasn't a perfect performance, was it? And that's what happens because these bodies are not perfect, and they have never, even since you and I have been saved, never have our bodies been able to perform as in the way, in the manner that he wanted, as it should be performed. And it's all because of the fall, the fall, Adam and Eve, the fall, falling uh, to a, a performance that is less than what God wanted. And it says Jesus will change, when Jesus comes, he's going to transform, he's going to change my defective body. Now, maybe it's easy to see my defects, but guess what? You have some too. And he says, when he comes, he's going to transform and change 
yours and my defective body that is humiliated. How do you feel when you don't, when you don't perform at the level that you, you wanted to? How does it feel when you forgot to do something that you said you were going to do? Or how does it feel when you tried to do something and you didn't and you, you still broke something? I, how many times have, like me, I've tried to fix something and I made it worse? And got so upset with myself, I threw it away. And I shouldn't have. But how many times has that happened? And so he says, he's going to change my defective body that is humiliated from sin's effect. And he's going to change our bodies into a body like his body. His body. Now, I don't know what that looks like. And neither do you. But that's what he says. Your body and mine, when Jesus comes, will conform. That means look like, be the same as, be like the body that Jesus has. So, after the resurrection, thankfully, Jesus showed himself to a number of people, right? And so, I don't have it all down perfectly, but here are some thoughts from God's Word that tells us what Jesus' body, how it kind of worked and how it might have functioned. Okay, so, so his body, after the resurrection, had form. How do we know that? Because the disciples were with him and, and people were with him and they could, they, they, they could see his form. His body had the ability to function perfectly. His body, after the resurrection, was still recognizable. They recognized him. They said, well, that's Jesus. They were shocked at first. They didn't, almost couldn't believe their eyes. But they eventually recognized him as Jesus. This body that Jesus had after the resurrection, the Bible says, was able to consume food. So does that mean when Jesus comes and, he, and, he, and I get a body like his that I'll still like pizza? Yeah, probably. <laughs> and he was able to be mobile. His body was able to be mobile. It, it was able to move from one place to the other without any restrictions of space. And I can't even process this time. He's at, his body was outside of space and time. But he was there, but he was able to be mobile. And uh, his body, we have no record that it had any disease in it, so his body was free of disease. So when he comes and I get a, a, a body that's not defective, it will not have disease. Uh, th- my new body, your new body, when Jesus comes, will, will be free of sorrow. The Bible says that your body will be free of discouragement. Oh, how about this one? Our bodies will be free from temptation. No more temptation to whatever your weak link in the chain is. No more temptation to whatever that is. Everything from pornography to, to overeating pizza. Whatever. No, no more of that. Free of temptation. In other words, free. Our new bodies will be free because they're like Jesus' body. They will be free to catch this perfectly Obey the Father's will. Because that's what Jesus did. The Bible tells us that Jesus perfectly followed His Father's will. And that's really what we want to do. But we don't get it done perfectly. 
And just like Jesus, when he comes and gives us the new body, we will be conformed to his body, Paul says, in glory. Now that word in the Greek, glory, is doxa. And we sing a little chorus called the doxology. And it's all about glory and praise to God and to Christ. And here, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You know that song. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. (laughs) Written by Thomas Ken, 1674. 1674. The doxa, the doxology, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, glory and praise to Him. So in heaven, the glory of God is that the only thing that will matter, see, when we get the new body, and we are citizens of heaven, we get to be where we really belong, then the only thing that is going to matter with our new body and our, our, our permanent location where we were always supposed to be once we came to Christ, the only thing that will matter in that circumstance, are God's opinions about everything. That's all that's going to matter. We're not going to worry about what to eat, what to think about, whatever. It's whatever God thinks His opinions are about anything is going to be okay with us. Amen? Because, like Jesus, we want to do the Father's will. So far, now, we've been talking about individual bodies. The body of Jesus... We've been talking about your body, my body, our own individual bodies. But I don't want us to leave this morning without seeing the body of Christ in another application. And that is the church, the church that was born on Pentecost. The body of Christ is more than the individual body of Jesus, the Son of God. The body of Christ is every man... Every woman, every boy, and every girl who has placed their faith in Jesus and in whom the Spirit of God dwells when we came to put our faith and trust in Jesus, every one of those, the church as the body of Christ should operate as the Godhead operates. Now, I read that in Ephesians. One God, one Father, in one faith, one baptism, one, 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 one. That's why unity, Cody. That's why I said this about unity. And it's about unity not only in the Godhead. It's also about unity in the body of Christ. Not his personal body, his individual body. But the body of believers who are a body. We, The true church here in the sound of my voice right now is one body. I believe that is why the whole idea of unity is such a prominent theme in the New Testament. God wants His church to practice unity. Can I get an amen on that? God wants His church everywhere around the world to practice unity. When the spirit of unity is disturbed in a church, it is disrupted. And it is often disrupted by, by one of two scenarios, and sometimes it's maybe both. But it's disrupted by folks who either get upset over something, and they leave this body, and they go wander around to some other body because they got upset about something and join some other fellowship. 
And sometimes they join other fellowships and then other fellowships and other fellowships and other fellowships. I'm not sure that's what he had in mind. Or there's another group in the church. They create, they don't go anywhere. They just create trouble inside the church because they don't like something or somebody. And it disrupts this unity in the body. Now, that's easy for me to talk about. It's not an easy thing for us to work on. Amen? Because relationships can really be challenging. But a spirit of unity, like in a relationship, a great friendship, or a wonderful family, or in a marriage, must learn to preserve peace and harmony so that we are able to emulate the Spirit of Christ. Why do we persevere in a relationship? Why do we persevere in a friendship? Why do we persevere in a church body? Why do we persevere in a marriage? Why? Because it emulates, conforms to the Spirit of Christ. That was pretty good, Pastor Tim. That was, didn't get an amen. I saw amen. That was all right. It's pretty good. Uh, But that's deep. That's good stuff. That'll help you when the road gets tough. That'll help you when the arguments happen sometimes and the finances are low and uh, it doesn't feel like life is working so well or the health isn't good. But to do that, to emulate the Spirit of Christ, there needs to be a reasonable... Now catch this. There needs to be a reasonable respect for order. A reasonable respect for order. We saw... If you've had your television on at all in the last three weeks, you've seen what disorder looks like. We're trying to get a Supreme Court justice. And you've seen what disorder looks like. It's not pretty. It's ugly. And there were some days I watched that and I thought, I I don't even know if God can fix this. I didn't really think that. I don't believe that. But sometimes you're tempted. It's It's that depressing. When there's no respect for order. So let me leave you with a picture this morning of what Jesus is looking for in the body of Christ with reference to the church. This body, or any body, several bodies are meeting all across this county and all around this world. What, what is Jesus looking for in his body, the church? In May, uh, uh, May 26th of 1976, anybody know what l- was launched? Oh, you'd have no way of knowing. In fact, if somebody got this right, my goodness, you, you don't have to stay for the rest of the sermon. You're really smart. <laughs> it was the date for the launch of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now, aren't you glad you came? And I think I've played this clip uh, some time ago, but I'm going to play it again because it fits in the scenario, and then I'm going to contrast this with something else. So be patient with me, if you will. But it featured an orchestra. At the end of one of the songs on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles, of course, it featured an orchestra with each member that they had asked to take their instrument and take it down to the very lowest note. Now, right now, this is... He's got a capo on there. Can I take the capo off, Christian? By the way, it's Christian's birthday. Happy birthday, Christian. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Okay, right now, let's see if we can get down. 
Unless he tunes that lower than it's supposed to be, that's the lowest note that this guitar normally would play. And if I put my finger way up here to the, high, the top fret and play this, theoretically, that's the highest note, although you could go higher than the frets. But, and so they said, take your instrument, whether it's a piano, whether it's a bass, whether uh, it is a, a horn, whatever it is, and for about 40 seconds, we want you to start at the lowest number or note, and we want you to play every note from the lowest all the way to the highest your instrument will play. And you do it without worrying about what your neighbor is doing. You, pl- you do it just however you feel inspired to do it. And this is what that sounds like. sounds pretty chaotic, doesn't it? That's when everybody's doing their own thing without any respect for order. Let me quote a study you might find interesting. Now, this may step on some people's toes. I don't mean to, but this this isn't my study. And I quote, At a meeting of the American Psychological Association, Jack Lipton, a psychologist at Union College, and R. Scott Bologna, or whatever his name is, not it's not Bologna, but it's whatever, uh, (laughs) that wasn't in my notes, so I stepped out of the quote, sorry, back in. A graduate student at Columbia University presented their findings on how members of the various sections of 11 major symphony orchestras perceived each other. The percussionists were viewed as, sorry, insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing, (laughs) yet fun-loving. String players were seen as arrogant, Stuffy and unathletic. (laughs) The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. (laughs) Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, though a bit egotistical. Interesting findings, to say the least. With such widely divergent personalities and perceptions, how could an orchestra ever come together to make such wonderful music? And the answer is simple. Regardless of how those musicians view each other, they subordinate their feelings and biases to the leadership of the conductor. Under his guidance, they play beautiful 
music. Unquote. Now, you heard the chaos in the Beatles album. Now let me take you to another sampling. Led by the Queensland Music Festival artistic director and multi-instrumentalist James Morrison, who is leading what is known as the world's biggest orchestra. This orchestra has 7,224 musicians in it, most of whom never met each other and came from all different parts of the world. Take a listen to this. This was a musical mass participation event on a scale never before seen in Australia. It drew people from all over the world. Amateurs, professionals, the young, the old, beginners and virtuosi all came together to make history in Queensland. School groups playing alongside the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, this was an all-inclusive event that said to the world, Queensland Music Festival has begun. So what he's shouting out there is, we did it. We did it. We made harmonious music together. I got news for him. That's not the world's largest orchestra. We're waiting for that when Jesus gets here. Amen. It gave me a picture of what heaven is going to be like with these various bodies of Christ all around this world who are pulled together. I don't know. God's maybe got a great big old stadium, and I don't know who gets to direct the orchestra or whatever. And then when it's finished, Jesus maybe is doing it, and he said, we did it. We loved one another just like the Father intended. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Corinthians 10. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one Bread, Jesus Christ. Romans 12. For through the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. 
I'm going to close with this quote from a fellow named J.A. Matters. And this is what he says, which kind of sums this up a bit on Christian unity and the body of Christ and eagerly awaiting for him and understanding the love we are to demonstrate for one another. He says this, and I quote, One Jesus, one body, one loaf. The church is reminded at the Lord's table that we are one in Christ. Division cannot sit at the table. It buckles under the gentle pressure of God's love. We are to love one another as he has loved us. Hurdles to unity, barriers to fellowship, and footholds for the snake, the devil, snake, are all dealt with before enjoying communion. The blood of Jesus unites. We are reminded we are one, and we are to pursue oneness in our one anotherness, unquote. And so Paul closes this thought on the importance of unity in Christ in the church by suggesting that we can't do this, we cannot do this without his help. We cannot love one another that way without his help. Why? Because we have these humiliated bodies that don't perfectly perform all the time. We must have help until we get the new body. Amen? Because without his help, we still have these cursed, imperfect bodies. So as we pray and as we strive together for unity, Paul says Jesus then brings his power to the equation. That's why the last part of that verse says this, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. You see, that unity and that perfect love is only possible when Jesus exerts his power, which has power over all things, and he says all things are under his feet. And when we implore him through prayer and through study of God's word and maximum effort and encouraging and reminding one another of these things, it can get done. Because that word exertion in the Greek is the word we use for energy. Jesus has the energy, that dynamite power, to be able to help us stay in unity and to love one another. It holds influence. That energy holds operative power to help us work toward unity in the church, unity in our marriages, unity in our families, unity in our relationships, in and outside of the church. So together as the body of Christ, let's make a beautiful symphony. Amen? Let's make a beautiful symphony right here at Lakeview. Let's stand. If you uh, have not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it's something that you need to do. Cody said it well. it's It's a decision that Jesus will help you with but it's a decision that you need to make. And you need to make it firm and official with God.
You need to never want to face God and have him say, what did you do with my son? And you say, well, I kind of, I sort of, I meant to, I kind of knew the story. I knew about Christmas and all that, but I, no, he wants to know what you've done with his son. Because until you understand the humiliation that our feeble efforts are in this world and in this life without God's help, we'll realize how, how humiliating we are before heaven's audiences, we will never fully appreciate what he did on the cross for us. And so God wants to know how humble, how low, how, how in, in tremendous authenticity and reality do you understand that you are before a holy God? And how deeply, desperately you need a Savior. And then and only then do you reach out to him and say, yes, this is the Savior I need. And I put my faith and my trust in him. And I want to know him. And I want to know the power of Christ working through me until he gives me a new body like his. And then it'll be okay. So you need to do that. And you can do that today before you leave. Just come and let us pray with you and we'll, we'll show you how to do that. And for the rest of us, look, church, keep working on love. Keep working on a spirit of unity with one another. Keep forgiving one another when we fail one another. Don't hold grudges. That's the natural thing to do. And practice forgiveness. And and bring encouragement. Somebody said one time they went to a service, and not necessarily our service, but a service, and they said it sounded like a pep rally. Let me tell you something. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some do, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching when Jesus is coming. So every church service ought to have a little pep rally in it to encourage one another. Amen? It's tough out there outside those doors. And sometimes it's tough inside the doors. And we got to work hard at it. But we need a little pep rally. How many of us feel like we had a little pep rally with our worship and praise this morning? And I hope that studying God's Word has encouraged your heart and your spirit in terms of the oneness in the spirit of unity in the body of Christ. Heavenly Father, as we leave this place today, may we be thankful for the call to unity. And may we be thankful for your willingness to help us to live with one another in a spirit of love and forgiveness. And we pray, God, that there will be such a love aroma uh, emanating from this beautiful place. We saw a picture of it at the beginning of the service, Lord, that it will just float out into the highways and byways and reach literally all kinds of places around the world, that this is a place that practices love in the body of Christ. And so help us to do it with your help, Lord. We ask you for it. Bless us now as we go out into the highways and byways and give us opportunities to share Christ with the lost and to practice love and forgiveness with one another. And all of God's people said together, Amen. God bless you. Have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for your patience. Thank you.